RTHK Radio 3. Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Hope you had a lovely Lunar New Year break. This week, David Bellis of the Hong Kong History website, grulo.com, joins me in a study full of books that we're sorting out. They belong to the late Dr. Dan Waters, who died a year ago. He was a friend and a regular for 15 years on the Hong Kong Heritage Programme. I'll be putting out a programme of Dan highlights in later weeks. But meanwhile, David and I had a look through some of his books. Dan's job in Hong Kong was teaching technical building after he came here in 1954. In this week's programme, David talks to me about some of his book finds and the fact that Dan lived at 41 Conduit Road in Realty Gardens, the former site of a large and rather beautiful colonial building that was used previously by the Foreign Correspondents Club. and was also staged as a hospital in the 1955 movie Love is a Many Splendid Thing, starring William Holden and Jennifer Jones. So I'm um, here in Dan Waters' library, his, his office with Anne-Marie. Uh, Anne-Marie invited me along to look at some of the books in his collection and what a broad range of subjects he's got. So I've been concentrating on the history, and that's just a small part of it. And within those history books, we've got a few different categories here, so a couple I've picked out. These are ones I think of as sort of history classics, uh, books that are, can be fascinating to, to read. And what struck me is how many of them have got inscriptions in the front to Dan. So here's a very recent book, The Arthur May Story, by Ronald Taylor. And in the front it says, Dan, many thanks for encouraging me to produce this book, Ron, 2015. Then we come to a much older book, Power and Charity, a Chinese merchant elite in colonial Hong Kong. That's by Elizabeth Sin, another well-known historian here. For Dan, with best wishes to a good friend, Elizabeth, and that's 204. So over all these years, you know, he's had such an influence on the, the historians here in Hong Kong. Yes, when you do look through the books, there's any number that say, thanks for your help, thanks for your kind research, mm. thanks for your, well, you know, it would always be with him also researched memories. Um, but I agree. So with your website, grulo.com, are these are some of Dan's books going to be useful to you? They are. They're going to be so useful in a, in a bunch of different ways. Some of them are great resources just to have and dip into as you as you want. And some of them are going to sort of trigger off new lines of thought, I think. There's a book here we've got. Hong Kong Social and Economic Trends, 1968-1972. So a good bit of bedtime reading, you know, exciting <laughs> stuff. Lists. <laughs> Lots of lists, that's right. But you look at some of the patterns and you just get little glimmers. This one's the Population Pyramid, 1971. In 1961... Population 0 to 14, 1.3 million. 65 and over, 88,000. You know, so Hong Kong, a really young society then. It was just heading into its boom years. 1971, 0 to 14, is grown, 1.5 million. But 65 and over, 177,000. It's doubled. So we're just seeing the sort of the glimmers of the ageing problem that we're going to be running into, into soon. Here's another page from the book. And it's about households who make their living from agriculture. There can't be that many of those in Hong Kong now. But in 1961, 8,500 households made their living from growing rice, which is kind of hard to believe. By 1971, down to 1,000. So we're just seeing the end of that era. And, and another category, which I'd never even imagined, uh, hunting and trapping. <laughs> Imagine that, going out with your sort of beaver hat and your rifle <laughs> off in the hills. 
1961, there were still 200, and 1971, still 100, but I, I guess we're probably down to zero on that for now. So you basically got hunting and trapping licences? I don't know. Well, that, that's going to be the interesting thing. It's a whole, you know, a PhD in there somewhere, I'm sure. <laughs> so hunting and trapping, it's a very interesting, though, as you say, with the those households that made their livelihood through rice in that period leading up to 1971 diminishes by 7,500. And that, as you say, is a real show of how Hong Kong was becoming industrialised. Yes, it was at the end of the old New Territories. Reading... Um, Austin Coates, I think, probably from the 50s in the New Territories and talking about how cutting grass in the hillside was what tipped the balance between starvation or survival. You know, it was that that close. So a very sort of hand-to-mouth life there. So not surprising that people would much rather move into a, a town and, and have a steady job in the industry. Yes, we've seen, of course, so much of that happening in the mainland over the past 30 years. But uh, with Hong Kong, it is interesting that you see these photographs, and I'm sure you've come across many, where it's people bending over to plant the rice, since it's buffalo going through the mud. Yes, we have quite a few of our pictures come from people who are here in the 50s doing their national service. And they're out there, as you say, they're seeing the people with the water buffalo, and it's a very rural scene. And if you were stationed out at Set Kong at the airfield there, you were surrounded by paddy fields. And if you look at a, an aerial photo of it now, you'd be surrounded by uh, containers, I think, shipping containers. Oh, so, yeah. Not quite so romantic. <laughs> no, not quite as pleasant. But as I say, when I go out into the countryside, I'm sure, sure there's certain areas of the mainland you don't have to go far at all, and it will be buffalo that are, again, used as ploughs um, and a, a very rural countryside, despite... Uh, the massive, massive expansion of cities on the mainland. But at the same time, I say romantic, but then, as you say, the the, the chances of getting disease that that you couldn't afford to have treated or you didn't have access to medical facilities or otherwise just, as you say, hand-to-mouth, the children having to work rather Mm. than continuing their education. So it would have been a very tough time. Yes, I think that... That's the world over, isn't it? Even in the, in the UK, you talk to farmers' families and they, they worry about, well, will the kids want to carry on this hard work? They're getting up at five to do the milking every day or would you rather be in a, a nice warm flat and go into an office at nine o'clock? Now, when I used to interview Dan, it was over a, a huge number of uh, subjects and I'll be putting a programme together to highlight some of those. But, you know, one week he was uh, superb. I think we did three or four governors. Um, he always had his notes ready. and uh, But we would also do, we went one time up the escalator and uh, chatted as we went about the streets alongside. But the side of him that I interviewed him less about was actually his educational side. And he came here, he worked at uh, the Hong Kong Technical Institute in Wan Chai. And in fact, that was then absorbed into, and he was in that essence, one of the founders of Hong Kong Polytechnic University. And you've got one of his books there. Yes, here we go. It's, this is not a book that he's, he's bought. This is a book he's written. It's Understanding Technical English, Teacher's Book Number One, by K. Methold and D. D. Waters. And I've never seen this book before, but you're saying this has been a very, very successful book, is that right? Yeah, Dan, Dan told me it sold, a, it sold a million copies just because it was rather useful. Um, so it's a sort of like booklet form, I think there were several of them. And basically how to use nails, making an electric current. So I don't, I'm not sure whether you do these things at home. We've making got, things with glass. That's right, we've got a list of structures using a hacksaw, always handy to know about. 
making things with glass, glass blowing, as you, you said. I don't think that one's probably so, so handy. What is a camera? There you go. What, what indeed. <laughs> and what does it say? Do we, we don't get an answer, unfortunately. We just get the question. This is obviously to stir young minds into <laughs> uh, inquiry. And get them to pronounce. Oh, steel um, wire. Okay, Ch chapter 20, steel wire. So we get vocabulary, spool, drum, die, rod. The workmen wind the cold <laughs> steel rods around a spool. <laughs> there are obviously some, some students from this school with very good enunciation. <laughs> um, no, and the nice thing about this book is that the same way that he wrote history. It wasn't fancy. It was very approachable, very clear to understand and fun as well. So... Now, with you, I've talked to, with Grulo.com about, you know, the fact that you've managed to put together, for example, a collection of war diaries of, of civilians. Of, so these are things that have been kept in families, found in attics decades afterwards. And the challenge here, when you're sitting here, where I, which I often did with Dan, uh, he's a, a man who came here in a teaching capacity, really, in 1954. He had fought in El Alamein. He was also a historian, along with his son Barry, and uh, of, uh, you know, the Norfolk area that he comes from. So you have all of these different elements of his life, and you're sitting here in the study, which in a few weeks' time, the books will have gone to various people who are interested. Also, several photographs of him high-kicking, doing his kung fu in his 60s. And uh, you're also looking at this wide variety of interests that, that, as you describe, are in his books and his papers. Now, but when I think back to those war diaries that were saved, I mean, wouldn't it be a shame if we didn't have access to this kind of personal history? It is, isn't it? And for, for a variety of reasons, there are people that will still find it too painful to talk about. You know, very understandable, but... but what a shame that that's lost. And the other people that it's in the family and perhaps they feel it's private. Understandable as well, but you know, I do encourage people to share what they can. And I think the saddest ones are when someone passes away and that information just disappears. You know, maybe someone without a strong connection comes and deals with their papers. The memories just all get lost. So it, it is an encouragement if anyone has that type of material available. Either share it now is the best thing or at least sort of highlight to relatives what's valuable that they want to, to see passed on to, to later generations. Here in Hong Kong, I think it's also what I've noticed is uh, make sure that you dehumidify. Oh, yes, it's a <laughs> shocking environment for, for paper between mould and silverfish and all sorts. So, yes, keep it nice and dry, plastic bags, plastic boxes. So what else have you got there? Well, the other two were ones I haven't really seen before. So this is one I, I've seen one copy before, but uh, Dan had a whole set of them. Hong Kong Military History Notes, 25 Hong Kong dollars. This is the first edition from 1986. And when I read it, I, I get quite a kick out of this. It says, These military history notes are intended to provide information on this fascinating area of Hong Kong story and give those interested a forum to exchange information and swap ideas. Contributions and letters are welcome. So this is gulo.com <laughs> 30 years ago, before there was any internet, you know, and, and so it's already uh, underway here. And it's written by uh, Philip Bruce, who I'd be certainly interested to know more about. It's not, not a person that I've met. I've, I've seen mentions of him before in some of the quotations. And a couple of examples from inside the book. So it, it has um, those memories that we were just talking about. People have obviously been in touch with him and he's gathered those. And here's one that's uh, very sort of prescient from, I say, 1986. Going, going, gone, development continues to take its toll on Hong Kong's military history. So this is talking about the military buildings around Hong Kong and how they're all being demolished. Uh, the first one he gives is the Battle Box. That was the old military headquarters, uh, which disappeared with the building of Pacific Place. And the next one's talking about 
pillboxes along the coastline near Waterfall Bay and Telegraph Bay. And the last one, which is a nice surprise, he mentions the impressive West Battery with three large gun barbettes and extensive stores and tunnels in Kowloon Park is slated for demolition in the next few months. So I'm not sure what happened there, but that's all still there. You can go and have a walk around that um, in, the, in the Kowloon Park. I would imagine writing about heritage in the 1980s would have been, or built heritage at least, would have been quite a... Well, you had to be quick with the camera because uh, before the uh, wrecking balls came in. But yes. it would have been actually, I mean, on the one hand, progress is progress, I suppose. But on the other hand, it could have been a little bit depressing. I think it would have been a lonely task, <laughs> yes. It would have been uh, felt widely misunderstood. And then the last one, again, you know, Dan's just got all these gems. This is by an Eric, and I'm not sure how we say this name, C-U-M-I-N-E, Cumin, Cumin. It's called Hong Kong Ways and Byways, a miscellany of trivia. I've never seen it before. It's a great thick book. It covers all sorts, really. It's, it's a little bit like talking to a Dan. So here's an example. We've got the Nationalities Bill, National Service. Names, even today, most Chinese have many names. Babies are given milk names like dog, cat, bird, etc. to deceive the evil spirits that there is no son in the family, only an animal, so they do not harm him. Oh, how delightful. I didn't know that. No, well, it's funny, it just came up in conversation with my wife. She's local Chinese, and I hadn't heard that story. She was saying how that's, that was the practice in their family when they were little, and how they wouldn't call their mother, mother. They'd call her auntie. And it was sort of a, a similar thing that you trying to trick the evil spirits there. So you've got all sorts of facts in this book, and they're all done in uh, alphabetical order. So you can go from Murray House to Nathan Road. But uh, just looking over your shoulder there, what's murder by broomstick? The soldier known as the broomstick murderer. That was uh, from the 1970s, apparently. Oh, he was freed after an operation thought by the doctors to be successful, removing the frontal lobes of his brain to rid of his compulsion to kill. The operation was a failure. He committed murder only a few months after his release from prison. It's rather a dark story. A bit, bit lighter over here on the end page again. National Service. Well-known theatrical figures who spent their national service here in the New Territories include Michael Caine and Matt Munro. Neither served under their present names. I never knew that either. No. You're going to write to him. <laughs> I have some nice pictures to share with us, I wonder. You can do your... You're only supposed to blow the doors off impersonation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Five, four, three, two, one, go. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. You knew Dan Waters, uh, and uh, I think he also contributed to Grulo, didn't he? He did, and I only knew him just a tiny bit right at the, the end of his life, unfortunately, and that was mainly through through going to RAS talks. Um, and so the Royal from, Asiatic Society? Sorry, yes, through the Royal Asiatic Society. Uh, my memory of him there would always be at the end of a talk, you know, he'd stand up to uh, ask a question, and you'd have kind of uh, 30 seconds of question, and then you'd learn then for the next five minutes of all about the subject. You know, all, he'd just be able to share all of this input on whatever the topic the speaker was talking about, it seemed. Um, and did contribute a little bit to, to Gulo. And yes, and you, you kind of wish you'd, you'd ask more questions. I think that's always the way, isn't it? I'm sitting in the study of Dan Waters, Dr Dan Waters, who was a, a good friend of mine and historian and was the happy interviewee 
on any number of Hong Kong heritage programs. He died at the beginning of 2016 at the age of 95. He was also a war veteran and fought at El Alamein in North Africa. The period that I knew him was also as a past president of the Royal Asiatic Society and he would write papers, also write books on a variety of subjects in retirement. I'm sitting here with David Bellis of the website, the Hong Kong history website, grulo.com. Do have a look if you haven't already, grulo.com. You can not only look at the website, but there's also a free newsletter. Now, among the books and papers that Dan wrote, David, is also uh, a paper on what's now Realty Gardens, which is at 41 Conduit Road here in Midlevels, but uh, was a building of a very different sort previously. Mm, it was this lovely old colonial building, and I guess quite a lot of your listeners have seen it already because it starred in Love is a Many Splendid Thing. There's a the scene where an ambulance drives up a ramp to a hospital building, and it's where Hansu Yin is, is supposed to be working um, in the film. And that was the old number 41 Conduit Road, so that was the building on this site beforehand. <laughs> all of his memorable performances as Mark Elliott, foreign correspondent, American and married. And Jennifer Jones, superbly portraying the beautiful Eurasian girl, Han Suyin, whose love defied a world of convention. It wouldn't be good for you to see too much of me anyhow. Might even be harmful. Oh? Why? I'm Eurasian. The word itself seems to suggest a certain moral laxity in the minds of some people. The white colony of Hong Kong where all the filming took place in scenes of breathtaking beauty, pointed to the differences in their skins, their countries, their background, but their love would not be denied. You don't know about me. You kiss a girl and it doesn't mean anything to you. Just a kiss. But it isn't so with me. I, I have never known any man but my husband. I feel on the brink of something. This is a true, unforgettable story of a forbidden romance as Han Suyin herself tells it with unembarrassed frankness and exquisite sensitivity. You're not Eurasian. Your pride and sense of dignity are not involved. Of course they're involved. You're not something I picked up off the street, and you're oversensitive about being Eurasian. I don't want anything sordid to... Sordid? I'm in love with you. Don't you understand that, Suyin? I love you. So Love is a Many Splendid Thing is the story of American journalist Mark Elliott and the author Han Su Yin, who's Eurasian, and of course it's based on the book by Han Su Yin. Now, while the film is modern in how it tackles issues of race and prejudice, Jennifer Jones was still a Western actress made up to look half Chinese. The on-screen romantic chemistry between the lead actors is believable, but off-screen they couldn't stand one another. In the biography Golden Boy, the untold story of William Holden, author Bob Thomas explains how. 
The love scenes between Holden and Jennifer Jones evoked tears from millions of American women, but the film was a rare instance when he lacked affection for his leading lady. Miss Jones complained about her makeup, her costumes, the dialogue, and when Holden failed to sympathise, she complained about him. I'm going to tell David about this, she said repeatedly, and her husband, David O. Selznick, sent a stream of memos to Fox about her complaints. The acrimony reached the point where the two stars were scarcely speaking to each other, except during their love scenes. Holden decided to seek a truce, and he presented Miss Jones with a bouquet of white roses. She threw them in his face. The other reason it's possibly well known, it was home to the FCC for many years. Oh, so the Foreign Correspondents Club. Yeah, they were here, so I'm sure there are many, many tales can be told from, <laughs> from those times. We got uh, interested in it because we were looking at the, the film and we were trying to nail down all of the different scenes. And that's when I came across this paper by Dan. So Dan wrote a lot of his material and had it published in the Journal of the Royal Asiatic Society. So this is a, an annual publication that goes out to members. And they've generously since put them online. So if you go to the Hong Kong Journal's online website, it's part of the Hong Kong U website, you can find all of these old papers and they're full of fascinating information. So here he's written up his yet more thoughts on Han Su Yin's A Many Splendid Thing, Conduit Road, and it's environ. So, you know, as always with Dan, he's got such a broad um, approach to history. And if I can, I'd just like to read out a couple of paragraphs from here. So here he's talking about the, the FCC time. From 1951 to 1961, the Foreign Correspondents Club, a period some members describe as its heyday, was ensconced in the splendid building at number 41. One could drive to the club then and either drive up the slope or there was space at the bottom and you could take the lift up to the main entrance. There were nine bedrooms on the upper floor and the fireplaces were of Italian marble, and the whole house had a wonderful ambience. With a little stretch of the imagination, one can almost picture Han Su Yin sitting under a cupola on the roof, partaking of afternoon tea. The FCC was offered the lovely old building for a mere 250,000 Hong Kong dollars in the 1950s, but the political situation was considered too precarious at the time to contemplate purchase. I imagine they must regret that decision <laughs> to this day. Now, he is so interested in this area because he, he came to live here. He says, I came to live in Conduit Road in March 1955 at the previous block at number 56 and I frequently walked past the old FCC sometimes when boisterous parties were in full swing. On Saturday nights, it was considered the place to be. The FCC had its own band and also hired bands from the armed services. Private parties were common there as well as diplomatic corps and airline lunches. Now, apart from the noise coming from 41, he says that Conduit Road was generally a quiet and peaceful spot. And this is hard to imagine, but he says, at the western end especially, it was almost like a country road with trees and undergrowth. And you could sometimes hear barking deer calling from Victoria Peak. At that time, you could still hire a sedan chair and four coolies to carry you up to Conduit Road. There were half a dozen or so, parked regularly in Wyndham Street in Central, up until the late 1950s. The fare, just 30 cents for each 15 minutes, with a 30 cents surcharge. And the working life of a chair coolie was said to be just eight years. That's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? It's within living memory. Now the story takes a more personal turn. When the site was redeveloped uh, in the summer of 1970, there were 1,200 applications to purchase 400 flats at Realty Gardens. My wife and I were successful in the ballot and we took possession of our newly completed flat, for which that's where we're sitting here today, for which we paid in mid-1972 the princely sum of 114,000 Hong Kong dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's gone up a little bit since then. 
So Han Tzu Yin, of course, was a, quite a prolific author, but she actually would have a love affair with a married uh, American journalist who would die in the war in Korea. In terms of this, as you say, this ambulance that comes up, but there's some other shots that are really lovely in Love is a Many Splendid Thing, and I find that I watch it more to discover old Hong Kong than I do yes. um, <laughs> for necessarily for the film itself. Yes, I think anyone who's relatively new to Hong Kong, you know, we're just here for the last few decades, it's a, a glimpse of a completely different Hong Kong that's so hard to believe. But people who grew up here in the 50s, you hear of people who, it's their treat. You know, once a year almost, they'll watch it and just be transported back in time to, to old Hong Kong. There's some lovely scenes down around the the beaches around um, Deepwater Bay, I think it is, or Repulse Bay, with the, the lovely mansions along the, the waterfront there and down in Stanley, this little village. Just all of it, it's lovely. I, I love watching that. But you're right, though. It's, it's good also to watch because it's like that's when Dan Waters came to Hong Kong. Yes. You could always imagine he might be in the back of one of the scenes somewhere. <laughs> Pop up as an extra. Now, funny enough, last week when I was here, we were looking out the window and there's a path goes across the mountainside in the back and I was asking if he knew what it was. And just looking back again through this, this note, here's the answer from Dan. So in his own words, on the steep hillside with its lush vegetation, opposite and well above Realty Gardens, exists even now what is sometimes called Cheung Bo Tsai's Path. Shown on maps, starting more or less opposite and a little higher up than May Road, although heavily overgrown and not negotiable in parts because of landslips and other obstructions, the footpath goes round and finishes up on the southern slopes of the peak. Cheung was Hong Kong's most notorious and fearsome pirate, who was at the zenith of his powers during the first decade of the 19th century. He was reputed to command as many as 600 junks, 40,000 fighting men, including a few British ex-Royal Navy gunners, and owned the prettiest girls. No firm evidence, however, appears to exist that he himself ever walked along that path. <laughs> great story, though. It is a great story, and, and that's what I, I like reading Dan's stuff. He's quite happy to mix in the good stories as well as, you know, the, the cold and dry facts. So what's the question today? Hello, dear listener. Our question for you is, we've just had someone write to us about the incinerators around Hong Kong. And we know there was one in Kennedy Town, one in Lai Chi Kok, and one, I think it's around Kwai Chung. And there was a fourth smaller one in Silvermine Bay, Moi Wo, and we can't find any trace of it. So we're wondering if anyone's got a photo or a map that shows it. So did it get all burnt up? <laughs> yeah, someone a bit careless with the matches one morning. So it was a, an incinerator that uh, was used by the government in what period? I mean, are we talking recent or past decades? I think they started off probably around the 70s. When I moved to Kennedy Town in 92 we would still get these great black smuts come and land if we left the windows open and the incinerator was still going then. That one shut in 93. You know, we talk about incinerators these days, but, you know, you wouldn't get black smut, bits of smut coming out, mm -hmm. uh, although there's still obviously ample controversy over them. But uh, so this was at a time where, what, uh, this would be just rubbish collected that would be put in the incinerators? Yeah, it's funny that the world has swung back and forth. We started off with landfill and we ran out of landfill. So then the government thought, oh, no problem. We'll build these big incinerators and burn it all. And then at, towards the end of that time, a report came out just saying how terrible the air pollution was and then we should go back to landfill. And now, of course, we're running out of landfill again and we're kind of wondering what to do next. So this incinerator at Silvermine Bay, it was the Silvermine incinerator, was its name? Not sure what its name was, probably Moiwo. It was the incineration plant for Lantau, so it was quite a lot smaller than the ones, the other three that we talked about. 
but it was supposed to, to burn, I think, about 10 tonnes of rubbish a day. So you'd think it would be, you know, a memorable sort of size. So if you've got any ideas on an incinerator that used to be at Silvermine Bay, Moy War, uh, on Lantau, then do get in touch with David. How can they get in touch with you? Yep. David at gulo, G-W-U-L-O.com. My thanks to David Bellis of the Hong Kong history website, gulo.com. Next week, I'll be joined by poet Henrik Hogue. The voice stealer behaves in subtle ways, a ghost in the academic system. He never overtly silences strays, he is simply content not to listen. And later, historian Patricia O'Sullivan, who will tell me about a magistrate called Woodhouse, who worked here, who was the father of the famous British author P.G. Woodhouse. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. You've been listening to Hong Kong Heritage, uh, produced and presented, of course, by Anne-Marie. On your station, RTHK Radio 3. If your child is to enroll in Primary 1 in September this year, but has not secured a discretionary place... You will receive a letter from the Education Bureau inviting you to make your choice of schools at a designated Central Allocation Center on February 11th or 12th for Central Allocation. If you have not heard from the Education Bureau by February 7th, please contact the School Places Allocation Section at 2832-7700. reading for tonight. Samuel West reads Graham Greene's thriller The Third Man, the novel for the classic 1949 film starring Orson Welles and directed by Carol Reed. Today, as snow falls on a devastated Vienna, penniless pulp western writer Rollo Martins arrives, hoping to meet his old-school chum and hero Harry Lyme. But Harry Lyme isn't there to meet him. One never knows when the blow may fall. When I saw Rollo Martins first, I made this note on him for my security police files. In normal circumstances, a cheerful fool, drinks too much and may cause a little trouble, has never really grown up and perhaps that accounts for the way he worshipped Lyme. I wrote there that phrase, in normal circumstances, because I met him first at Harry Lyme's funeral. It was February and the gravediggers had been forced to use electric drills to open the frozen ground in Vienna's central cemetery. It was as if even nature were doing its best to reject lime. But we got him in at last and laid the earth back on him like bricks. Rollo Martins believed in friendship, and that was why what happened later was a worse shock to him than it would be to you or me. If you are to understand this strange, rather sad story, You must have an impression at least of the background. 
The smashed, dreary city of Vienna divided up in zones among the four powers, the Russian, the British, the American, the French zones, and in the centre the Innerstadt, under the control of all four powers. I never knew Vienna between the wars, and I am too young to remember the old Vienna with its Strauss music and its bogus easy charm.' 